Hey everyone, this is Tony Holbein. You are listening to the Super Revenue Brothers with Raul and Tony. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the stages of growth, the intricacies of each, and what we think is important to consider along your growth journey. Enjoy. So, uh, how have you been doing, Raul? Really busy lately, preparing for the Project A Knowledge Conference, the PACON, in, in short. Uh, and that's obviously a big event for us, really looking forward to it, lots of fun. But also, I would say, really, really nice event by now. Uh, I know but you're also, also going to be there. So I will be there, and I think you and I will be on stage somewhere talking about stuff. So that's going to be interesting. I'm also really much looking forward to it, because Berlin is kind of my hometown. You know, being back, back there is kind of a good thing for me. No, you... you You turned your back on Berlin, man. I mean, it's well, going to be true. rough when you come back here. <laughs> <laughs> it's been rough forever, by the way. But uh, no, you're totally right. What do we uh, What do we want to talk about today? So today, I think, and, and you put this forward, one thing I, I think is really interesting is late stage versus early stage in sales, yeah. in commercial. What does it mean? How do you navigate it? How do you go from A to B? And what is different? And I think that this is going to be really in, important for a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, And I'll just start with putting forward one thing that I, I say to a lot of my younger people from the, the companies that join me is that you don't want to just be good at like one stage of the company. Like ideally, if you want to be a good founder, you want to be good at like all stages and understand everything because yeah. you want to make money and you want to sell that thing. So you need to also bring it to an exit. So I think that's why this, this topic is super important. You want to no, be I think good at both. I think that's true. But what I also learned, and this is this is kind of another time where we're going to talk about, you know, I guess my journey as a founder, but also my journey as kind of a CRO. Um, what, what I also realized is while you want to have all of the future states in your head and want to optimize for them to a degree, you kind of can't. You kind of almost can't afford it. You need to kind of focus on the problem. You know, it's always the next game that's the most important, right? Like in football, right? So that's usually the issue. And the game that needs to be kind of played is is the one that you're in right now. Um, and I think it's actually helpful, at least for anyone's sanity, to try and see and understand that, yes, I need to do all of those things next and I need to start to think a little bit about this, but I also ca can't afford to, or don't have the luxury to confuse myself and, and trying to solve for something that's not up right now, right? And let, mm. me, let me maybe break this down just a little bit for people to try and, you know, follow my very theoretical way of talking about this. So number one, uh, it depends on how early we go, early stage, late stage, but number one, you need to reach product market fit, right? So this is, you know, number one problem to solve. I think UVCs, you have like one way of saying that someone has reached product market fit is like between one and three million in AR, right? Isn't, isn't that the truth? Um, I, so absolute disagreement. Um, <laughs> but this is, I, I, I feel like I'm sort of the only weirdo out there right now. Actually, with one more guy out there. So, no, I don't think that this is what product market fit means at all. And I'm very strongly influenced by, you might know the guy, Mark Robersh, yep. who I also did a podcast with once, one of the co-founders of HubSpot. Very, very smart guy. And he sort of has this theory that he put forth, which is the science of scaling. And basically, there's a, it's a wonderful paper. You can download it for free. It's like 20 pages. And I think you'll learn a lot about what you should be doing as a company early on. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that he put forward is that Product market fit is not a singular point in time, but it's rather, it is an ongoing process and it is something that is like health. So one day you go to the doctor and he's like, hey, Tony, you've been smoking too much, drink too much, maybe cut it down a little bit, your blood pressure is high, whatever. He's looking at markers, he's telling you, you did badly. Hmm. Months later, you come back, you did a little bit of sports, you 
ate better, you smoked less. It's like, hey, Tony, you're doing good. Like your health went up. That's what product market fit is like for him. And I agree wholeheartedly. And I do so because that's actually something that then you can use to, to drive your company. Yeah. What I disagree with is this VC thing where the VC is looking at you like, so Tony, and they're looking at you very strongly as like, so Tony, do you have product market fit? And you're like, uh, I don't know, Mr. VC, man. Uh, yes, yes, give me money, please. And you're like, well, okay, what does that mean? How do you know how to answer yes or no, right? Yes, exactly. So, and, you know, maybe we have another session on product market fit, but the, my main point is when you're in product market fit and a good clue is that you're pre a million, pre three million in ARR, that's a good clue. I don't think it's the end all be all. I totally agree with whatever you said there. But the key here is while you're in the pre-product market fit stage and working towards product market fit, guess what you need to focus on? You need to focus on product market fit. You don't need to have uh, all the scalable channels up and running. You don't need to worry about this right now. What you need to worry about is like build something that has a big enough market that, you know, and, and people don't churn and all of the different, you know, stats that you just rattled off there, or maybe that are on Mark's uh, paper. Kind of that, what you need to optimize for, right? So this is one stage. I think then the next stage is really this, and I think uh, people are starting to refer to it as go-to market fit. And this is usually between one and 10 or three and 10 or wherever you want to kind of draw the line here. And that stage really is about, okay, now we have something that we know people kind of like and need and want to have. And we kind of know that there's a big enough market and people want to pay for this. How are we going to get it out to them you know, again and again and again, right? Because around, depending on their ticket sizes, but around one to three million, founder sales will cease to exist. Your network will have been drying up. Whatever unscalable way you use to get to the three million, which is, by the way, fine. It's fine to kind of have very unscalable things happening to it. But at that point, they will simply just not work, right? So you now need to figure out how you're going to get this product out again and again and again, ideally in a predictable way to get up to the 10 million. Right. Would you agree with that? So I've, I have a next one also lined up, but kind of that that is actually usually the next step. Yeah. And I would really, in one sentence, what, exactly what you just said, which is do it again. That's basically what, what this is about. Do it again in the same market. Do it again with a slightly bigger customer. Do it again with a mm -hmm. different market. Do it again in France. Do it again in Germany. Or just do it again all over in the same uh, yeah. setup. That's what the and second then, phase is about, yeah. Yes, and and you know, I'm leaning a little bit on some of the work that the Winning by Design guys are doing around this, but then around the 10 million mark, which I've seen myself as well, and kind of recently they started popularizing this factory approach, which I 100% agree with. Around the 10 million, even if you have some things that have been scaling already, you know, your organization will turn more and more into, or at least the way you generate revenue will turn more and more into like a factory, you know, kind of machinery that you need to tweak and optimize and it's getting really repeatable. And really, if you at that point go out and raise funds, maybe it's called a series B or something like that at that point, the whole conversation is starting to be around how much money do you need in order to put into machine and how much do you get out, right? Kind of it starts to be very much about how can you convert, you know, money through this revenue engine and then therefore it needs to become a revenue engine, right? And I think then the last stage, and it's a bit unclear, you know, when and how that starts, but it's, I would say, around the 50 million mark, maybe a little bit earlier sometimes, where it really gets into, uh, hey, this now needs to not only work in terms of growth, 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 but actually also needs to work in terms of, let's call it sustainability. You need to be able to start making money on this thing. And at least from my experience, what differentiates that a little bit is you'll start seeing more conversations around diversifying your product portfolio. So maybe you have two, two products instead of one. 
you will start having more conversations around maybe buying other companies in order to either diversify the portfolio or you know add another regional revenue stream or whatever right you will start having those kind of conversations which i then i'm not sure if it's late stage or something like this but that would be later stage right and then after that i mean we're talking ipo and whatnot but that's how i would almost kind of cut these different stages up in order to have a sensible conversation around this yeah and i think you mixed a lot of very valid points in there not just from the view of a company but also from the view of a vc because that's you also as a vc think about it that way because you have to sort of look at the numbers and understand which numbers should be next and what's up next and what targets should you be achieving to sort of be on the road for for achieving, I don't know, IPO eventually at some yeah. point, but uh, up to that point. So I, I think in theory, 100%, I agree with you. And in a lot of cases, not most of them, but in a lot of cases, this is actually how companies also evolve. And I think maybe you've been part of companies where that has su successfully evolved and mm -hmm. actually also successfully led to an exit or mm -hmm. to some good outcome in the end of, at the end of the day. What I also see is with our portfolio companies a lot, and not all of them are on exactly that track record. Some of them are a bit behind. Some of them are maybe a mm -hmm. bit uh, in front also. But like we have to go away only from this sort of idealized version of, of the way that phases work because it's really for that one company out of your 100 investments that are going to go the ZAS route Yes. Uh, or SAS route and do exactly these markers. For the 90 others, it doesn't look like that. And it doesn't mean that they don't have a way to tweak it and make it into a successful company. No. So I totally agree with you. But I think where this framework still works, you know, take those numbers away, you know, kind of delete all of those different numbers and kind of don't look at this as like an ARR threshold, but look at it as a, you know, problems to be solved in a succession, so to speak, Right. And again, and this is, you know, Growblox, we're super early on, yada, yada. So I think we're in this product market problem, right? That's what we need to tackle. The next step then is really, you know, how do you find one, two, you know, it could be one. How can you find channels that you can use again and again and again and again, right? Yeah. And ideally, they don't necessarily have a ceiling to them, right? And when I say this, uh, my go-to example is Google Ads. They usually have a ceiling to them, right? Kind of you can... You can grow so much with them and that's fantastic, but then, you know, you won't be able to invest more dollars to get more out of it. So you will need to find something else. You will need to find, it's either outbound, whether that's full cycle or SDRs or whatever, it doesn't actually matter. But, you know, one way where you can initiate a conversation or it might be on, you know, those broader networks where people aren't going to look for something, but we're just, they're getting entertained. So this is like LinkedIn for B2B. It might be, you know, Facebook and the meta platforms for B2C stuff. It might be TV or radio, depending on whom you're selling to, right? But kind of those are the channels that you broadly have available that, that are like really nicely scalable. And you will need to find a way, this is my experience, you will need to find a way from one of the latter ones, not Google Ads, Unless you're in B2C. I think B2C is different, completely different game. Yes. You know, Google will always have enough for you in B2C, but in B2B, they simply won't, right? Everyone is looking for shoes. No one is looking for your niche company. Forget about it, right? So that will give you a little bit of a lift, but it won't get you to 10 million. So you need to find one of these others that work for you to get you to 10 million. And this will require, just like in the product market fit stage, that will require a lot of testing, trial and error, going back and forth questioning the people, questioning the channel, questioning the process, questioning everything. So this is, as far as I've lived through this, this is a tinkering, a tinkering and exploration process that's going on there in most cases, right? And I feel at least this is my perspective as a, as a founder, 
number one, you yourself need to be pretty clear on that that is the problem at hand. Number two, I am not sure if you can outsource something like this to a CRO. I've seen several now, several CROs stepping into a company that's in the middle of go-to-market fit and they're struggling a lot, a lot, a lot. But it's those CROs that they take the playbook and they get you from 10 million to 100 million. But being part of writing the playbook, it's a completely different skill set, I believe, right? And really kind of making not only sure that you hire the right people for this, but also be clear with yourself and the rest of the team that that's what you're going through. Kind of pro market fit, that's what we're optimizing for. Go to market fit, that's what we're now optimizing for. And then scaling again is a different thing, right? So I think it's important to, yes, let's not be too stuck with those different, you know, ARR numbers, but be clear on the problem that you're solving and then, you know, optimize for that. I think that's that's actually pretty important. Wholeheartedly, especially the tinkering part and that that is what, the second phase, if you so want, is about. I would go even a step beyond and say, it's not just about the tinkering in itself. It's about building an engine that consistently burns out or churns out these experiments. Yeah. And so the way I would describe it is almost identical, except that I would even go to the meta level, which is at mm. this stage, your job is to build this commercial unit into an engine that consistently comes up with new ideas executes them, evaluates them, and either then scales them or does stops to do them or puts mm -hmm. them on the back foot. And that should probably never stop. Not even at, if, if you're probably in, in phase three or four. I think that's true. I think what's super tricky, and this is out of my own experience, it's um, the, the amount of time before you can really say that an experiment works. It sometimes might be half a year or something like this and or even longer, right? I mean, it's some of that stuff, and let's have that conversation, but some of that stuff, it's not a, you try it once or twice and then you know or you don't know. I, I think it's uh, I think it's sometimes pretty tricky to navigate this. Yeah, I, I, you see, I disagree with that because I think you're just putting the bar up too high. And, and that's coming from someone who typically puts the bar up very high on like, you have to be firm on this, you have to be firm on that. Like, look, you're just trying to find out for now and for the next couple of years, do these channels work? And I think real, that's the only realistic question you can actually even answer. I think a lot of people in this stage that maybe have understood that they need to experiment shoot themselves in the foot because they think the channels they set up now still need to be valid channels seven years from now or six years from now. That's not the case. Like, look at look at how the world has changed in just five or six years yeah, and yeah. the channels that have, that no, have been added, whatever. I think, and maybe, I'm not sure if I said years or month, maybe kind of a mix this up a little bit, but my point is actually, let's just say you want to use outbound. Let's just say that's that's a thing that you kind of decided you want to try because of whatever yeah. reasons. What I've seen a lot is people jump into it, you know, dabble around a little bit in it, and after two or three months kind of give up and declare outbound doesn't work for us, for example, yeah. right? Let me jump in here because I think this is huge. I think this is where having, a, and, and you, you said one thing before, which is like the experimentation engine should be part of the CEO's job. I actually agree, unless you have a really good CRO or a similar person, Mm. who not everyone is good and not everyone really has the sort of like tool set to really bring a lot of experience and a lot of different things into a, into a job mm. like that. But if they do, I would probably trust them with that job because they probably can do it better than me. But I would like to, as a CEO, be very close to it. Now, when you run that though, an experienced CRO will be able to judge whether or not these efforts are probably going to bring something or not. Like, mm. For you and me, you probably don't have to wait six months 
until you have any kind of idea of whether outbound works or not. You probably have an indication looking at the funnel after a month or two. You probably can look into the calls and be like, hey, are these calls calls that I would like to have with my customer? Are these going somewhere or are we just wasting time here? Mm. And this is just for outbound. But this is where I think experience really, really comes in. And one of the things that this is one of the spots where I would really bring in experienced people as advisors, as consultants, whatever, as an early stage company, just to be able to tell me whether I'm on the right track or not, because nobody can do all channels. Nobody, not you, not me, not nobody. I've never met a person who's as good in sales, as in marketing, as in product PLG and all that. So Mm -hmm. this is where I would say, me, for example, I understand sales really well. If I were to try some marketing channels, I would bring in someone to help me understand, although I think my understanding of marketing is quite good, but I would want to have someone who can tell me exactly, hey, you're going the right way or not with this experiment or not. Because that's going to save me a ton of money and time. This is where money is really well spent in the beginning. Or I would bring in, for if I didn't know sales, I would bring in you and be like, hey, Tony, please listen into a sales caller to look at our pipeline. And you're going to be able to tell me, hey, look, like, I'm sorry, but outbound's not going to work for you right now. Like, you're, you're going to have other problems. I think what I'm wondering, though, you know, let's take myself, you know, used to be the typical scale up profile, you know, 15 million to 50 million, you know, done this, you know, two journeys of this accident and so forth. Um, managing teams of 100 to what is it, 450 people or so at the same time. I think those look great on paper, you know, maybe you even have the right logos and better, you know, certainly better logos than mine. But those are sometimes just not the folks to figure out the early stuff. That's actually what I think. And then it's really important to kind of make the distinction also to what you just said. It's like, hey, let's bring someone in that is a consultant to figure some of these things out maybe early, early on. I think that that might actually make more sense to hire someone that is the, I take the playbook from 10 and, and scale it to 100 versus we need to write and figure out the playbook to go from three to 10 or from one to 10 or whatever the number is going to be, right? I, I sometimes see those are different profiles. And, and the reason why I believe that's the case, it's earlier on, uh, let's just say it's go-to-market fit, right? It's not all the different pieces have settled into place. Everything is still a little bit flexible. You can still move things around. Uh, and for example, if you want to go outbound and want to make this a channel, you know, maybe that means you need to be able to address the mid-market better. That might mean you need to build different features in order to actually kind of be able to sell to them. That might mean also that you need to be able to ask for a bigger check. It might mean that, you know, there there's so many other things that, you know, have all of those different knock-on effects across the organization. And I think, this is my opinion, for a scale profile, that's sometimes pretty difficult to maneuver and to navigate. And and it's pretty easy to lose your fucking mind. I think yeah. there's a profile like that to kind of not being able to, okay, what is it that I can actually trust here? Um, because it's not only listening to the sales call and seeing if this is good stuff, right? Kind of does the whole package actually work out? And I think once you have the package nailed uh, for the channel and, you know, all of the different things, then giving it to someone that is like, okay, now we need the been there, done that guy or lady to come in and, you know, Okay, next bottleneck you're gonna hit is communication. Next bottleneck you're gonna hit is you know demand. Next bottleneck you're gonna hit is like tools and systems and processes or something like that that comes in with that mindset. I think that will that kind of gets you from the ten to the twenty or ten to the thirty or something like this. So it's I think it's again right. It goes back to you know what's the problem to be solved and it's an experimental and you need to bet on some of these things. And then who's the right person for that? And that might be someone that is an outsider, like a consultant for that specific thing. 
I do also believe founding team, CEO, CTO, all of these folks will need to be super involved in, in even yeah. that phase in order to figure this out. And to be specific, if, for that case, yes, you could bring in someone to help you with the whole motion. But mm -hmm. what I was really focusing on is, let's say that you're trying five different channels. And you, as Tony right now, you think that for three of them, you can judge very well personally yourself mm -hmm. whether that channel is probably going to work or not. Mm -hmm. But for the other two, you just don't know. And that's where you bring in two people, maybe yeah. even for one channel, one person, for one hour a week to tell you, hey, yeah. Tony, cut the crap. We can shorten six months of... of time wasted on this, this is not going to work. I That's totally valuable. Yes. This is really valuable. Like, I, you don't way, need to bring like the architecture guy in there immediately. Yeah. By the way, I wouldn't recommend to try five channels at the same time. Just kind of, yeah. this is kind of a mini thing. Really, you need one. You really need just one scalable channel. And, you know, maybe you should be working on two or so at the same time. I think that's it because it needs so much. I've learned it needs so much attention to actually get to this point. But from your perspective, right, let's just say you are... 9,999,000 and now you go over to 10 million and one. What changes? What actually changes in the organization and what, what do founding teams and CROs need to be prepared for? Like, oh, you know, now the game is, has jumped. Yeah. So I think this is where two, two things I would focus on. Number one is where I can pick something up you said before, which is you have to think about the channels that are actually scalable. Mm. And this is where it will bite you in the butt if you chose the channels that were not scalable yeah. and that were not going to travel with you. And I have I tried for the life of me to figure out where I've picked this up, but I don't remember. So another way of looking at the Google versus outbound problem is that Google does not learn with you and Google will not become profitable and Google will not become more efficient as you sell more. Yeah. But you will. And so ideally, as Mr. Holbein told us, at some point, you want to become profitable to build a successful company that out then 50 million or wherever the turn is. And meaning you will have to focus on efficiency of your acquisition at some point. And you will have mm -hmm. to focus on payback periods, not payback periods, sorry, but customer acquisition costs in general mm -hmm. and ratios at some point more. So that means that maybe the one thing in the beginning that you thought was going to save your company, which is, got, which is pay money per acquisition or pay money per transaction, is what's going to bite you in the butt later on, because later on, this same lead is going to cost you the same amount of money, possibly even more, actually, because that's typically how it goes. That will cost mm -hmm. you more. As the market evolves, the, the term becomes more competitive. Yeah. So what happens here, and that's really the one thing that uh, resonated with me in that, I think it was a podcast I heard, but I've, I can't remember for the life of me what it was, Google will not learn with you, or you will only learn with you. So mm -hmm. you need to, as you, and this also a big companies, where will they make their money? And where do you actually become profitable later on? with sales and brand. Yeah. Because those are the channels where you don't pay per click and you don't pay per lead. And you have and, faith in your own hand. No, and I mean, you can define so much stuff into brand as well, right? So I've, what I've seen now work really nicely a few times is then suddenly community, right? Is community also on yeah. a brand umbrella? Yeah. I think so, but it has worked extremely well for some companies. You will need to find some stuff that you can... And that's, I think that's the difficulty with this brand piece, for example. More people will know you. How do you get them to know more about you? Well, you can run ads, you can do outbound calls. That will ultimately also contribute to your brand, by the way. More people will, will know you and will be problem aware. And when they then have the problem, they'll be, ah, you know, I need to call up Raul because, you know, he can maybe solve this problem for me. And at some point it becomes like this fuzzy thing that just pushes you and accelerates you forward. And this is where this whole category creation idea comes from. 
if instead of you building a brand around, hey, we're Roblox, but if you build a brand around, hey, the problem is actually that everyone is focusing on sales forecasting, but you should be focusing on go-to-market forecasting instead because, you know, all of those wonderful reasons, then, you know, let's just say that became a category then people would be like, you know what? Let me not look for Groblox. Let me look for the category itself and then see there who's going to be on top of that category. And then people go for that, right? And and that's that's an alternative play that a lot of people trying to execute. That's why this category design is like such a trendy topic right now. And everyone wants to have their own G2 quadrant and wants to be in the top right corner. But that's basically the idea, right? You kind of sell the problem, you sell the category, people feel more prone to Google the category and then end up with the leader in the category who is, you know, by default, you know, in many cases, the one who originally came up with this. And saying that as not as a brand expert, but as a brand enthusiast, I would say, and also in, at Project A with a guy who was like incredibly knowledgeable about this topic, Simon Walter, learned so much about brand from him that to some extent, you can be intentional about that and, and really try to make that work sort of the get-go. To some extent, it's also not entirely in your hands because like things are happening out there and, and it's not, you don't have full control over defining a, a category. You can go out there and try. It can be your ambition though. Um, I think so I think that's a good way to think about it. No, and I think this is really something for the 10 million plus area. I would say, you know, you, you, you will be, whether you want it or not, you will be doing some brand work, work around, you know, all the time, but only around the 10 million and the series B check will you have the firepower to actually, you know, seriously try and start and build something like this if you wanted to go for a category, for example, right? So I think this is, you know, I talked to someone, I, I can't say the name yet because maybe they're going to be a customer, but really successful early, early stage team started around the same time that we did. They're like way ahead. Let's just say way ahead. And basically at the point where then also can, you know, be a great customer for us. And he told me that in the very beginning, they were just, hey, no bullshit. You know, we decided in our company in the early stage, come on, no bullshit. We're all going to sit down. We're all going to prospect. We're all going to ram through this target as fast as we can. And, yeah. and I would say, you know, all these wonderful brand things and so forth, you know, he might have put this into the bullshit category, right? And kind of, hey, that is something we can do later. Now we can discuss that and you can be, you know, yes and no about this. But those are all the things that just, you know, might be too expensive depending on your buyer and so forth, but might be too expensive to do this early and might honestly also be distracting, right? So I think it's, if it goes well for you, great. But if you put a lot of time and effort into brand and it doesn't pay off, you're kind of screwed actually, right? So, so I would be super careful in the leading up to 10 million, but then you need it. You, you will, you will need kind of that force in the background. And I think what's his name? Uh, Jason Lemkin. And I tried to find it because I was citing it and someone was calling me out on this. But Jason Lemkin mentioned something like 70% of the buying decision as you grow will be based on brand, right? Because yeah. people are just fucking lazy. It's like, okay, I need a CRM. Who's the winner in the CRM market? Oh, it's Salesforce. Okay, I'm going to buy Salesforce, right? And kind of that obviously has changed. HubSpot is now, oh, this could also be a winner. But basically, this is how people make big decisions. Many, let's just say most people make those kind of decisions based on okay, you know, I just need to kind of know where the market is, who's the winner in the market, let's buy them. Instead of doing the spreadsheet with the five different tabs and all the different features, you know, I've seen very few people actually do this. So where's then the decision-making coming from? It's a large, to a large degree, it's coming from the brand background radiation that might help you excel, right? And 
to a degree you've paid for this already and then they're coming in for free and you think it's free, but you know, there's, there's a cost to this either way. So I, I would actually disagree that you can afford to think only that late about brand. I would mm. like, I haven't done that exercise, although it'd be interesting. I would probably put that at least into the top 10 things I've learned at five, six years of Project A working with 100 companies in all kinds of fashions mm. is if I were to start my own company right now or join a company that's just been started is focus basically from almost the beginning already on some aspect of brand because you can almost afford not to. And I, I will tell you why, because almost every company of ours that I've seen become for lack of a better term, a failure over time. One thing they all have in common is they don't have a good brand. Hmm. And there's other things also. It's not the only factor. And it always is obviously the case. You don't have time to focus on it. You can't afford it. All of that is true. But if you don't do it, if you miss the bus, at some point, it's going to fuck you. And like almost every company I know that's older than a couple of years that doesn't have a good brand or missed that train, they have a bad brand. And one way that I think Again, Simon, our person dealing with that, is is really genius about that. One thing that he implemented on that is he also agrees you shouldn't spend a ton of time early on that. So he built this thing, which is called an MVB, Minimum Viable Brand. Mm. So it's just a small set of things that you need to get done in the beginning just to get started and then not have to think about it anymore, right? And And, and that's how you get started. You build things up in steps. No, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I may be the worst example of talking about brand isn't the right thing. I mean... You know, we have, obviously, kind of, we have this show. You know, what is that? Is yeah. that, that's brand. Then we have the revenue formula. Check it out. If you don't follow me on LinkedIn yet, do that. I thought you did that because that. we had fun together, Tony. <laughs> oh, that's right. No, that's actually what it is, you know. Yes. No, but, you know, uh, I, I agree with this to a large degree. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have done that either. I think there was a couple of other considerations in there as well, just to be kind of transparent. It took us like a year to actually bring a product to market. And then what do you do for that year? Um, you know, we were studying kind of Dave Gerhardt's founder brand book. I can just, you know, for someone that's super early on, give this a read. Um, but we were basically, we were literally sitting in a room, like co-founders and marketing dude. And we're like, okay, so we don't have a product to sell yet. So what are we going to sell? And then it's like, let's just sell, let's just sell the founder brand. Let's just kind of build this thing up. And this then, you know, obviously, you know, became to a, a large degree, became me together with the Growblox brand sitting behind this. And we can see, you know, wonderful things coming out of this. I don't want to go too much into detail on this because maybe it's a bit off topic, but there's a lot of tailwind that you are, you can never say it's because of, you know, that specific thing. So the attribution always fails. But I sometimes ask myself, like, hey, would all of that positive stuff have happened without all of the other things that we can't attribute here? And the answer probably would be no, right? And as you build this out, I totally agree. I mean, this will, I think it's a, biggie eventually i think the big question and you know i've got some some linkedin messages from other founders like talking you know asking me is questions directly around that which is really when should you be investing in this and you know hey is it paying off you know can can you see that this thing works and it's a really difficult thing to just say yes or no to it unless you obviously have like a hardcore brand believers like simon sitting over there right there's like yeah that's that's the thing although again what i like about simon this is not about about simon but what i like about him is He's a brand believer who actually also knows when it's bullshit and and when it's like, okay, please focus on something else right now. This is not going to save you. Yeah. So I think those are the best people. Who like, okay, they, they tell you, hey, you really need this right now and I'm going to help you. But sometimes you probably need something else. Like focus on your product so, first. So how did we get there? Kind of trying to go back from our tangent, which yeah, is kind I, of the I'll point take you here, back, by the way. 
I'll, yeah, I'll okay. take you back because go. I have one thing I really want to need to go to, which is we talked about, okay, let's go later stage. Mm. And one thing that we haven't touched upon yet, which I think at the very latest, probably most likely much earlier, but at the very latest, this is where you have to start focusing on customer success. Mm-hmm. Very prob- very likely earlier on, but you cannot get to that profitability point. You cannot get to that having nice figures point without keeping the customers you have. And if you've seen the stack graph of, and I, I forgot again who, who I saw the graph from, but it's been popping up everywhere. The stack graph of where revenue actually comes from. Mm-hmm. This is actually how revenue works. You will always need new customers because new customers are the food for your future revenue yep. that will come from expanding them but you need to keep the stock of customers there. Otherwise, you're fucked. So this is the number one reason why teams fail to go from 10 to 20 is that churn is taking over and they are unable to you know, fill the holes and add on top with Nubis. They're basically yeah. kind of reaching the wrong end of the S-curve you know, between 10 and 20 million and therefore never get to 20, right? Kind of that stalls them out. And if you have a churn problem around 10 million, this... The thing is, if you have a churn problem at 1 million, and let's just say if annual contracts and it's 20%, by the time you hit that churn a year from now, your Nubis engine will be 2 million. So you're churning out 200K, but you produce 2 million. It's like, you know, I don't give a shit. But by the time you're 10 million, 15 million, you have 20% churn there, your Nubis engine needs to be 5 to 8 million a year, which is extremely difficult and expensive in order to make up for the loss on churn and then add something on top in order to stay growing. And that's kind of the, the simple, stupid math reason. And, you know, at Growblox, we have like a, a saying, when we sometimes talk to super early stage teams, it's like, oh, we don't have churn. Well, you don't have churn until, until you have churn, right? Kind of that's, you know, really having sometimes this magical idea that no, actually our gross retention is perfect. It turns out to be always untrue. Um, and yes. if you don't plan for this, if you don't think about it, if you don't see that there might be an issue coming up with this, you'll be kicking yourself in the nuts in a year or two from now. Yeah. And exactly what you just said, as you said, those are just figures. But I've seen, I actually have one or two companies in mind where it, it happened exactly like you just said, mm-hmm. which is they had very rapid growth in the beginning. And so the churn that they had and also had sacrificed for that rapid growth felt like, yes, maybe it's just 10% or 15% mm-hmm. of a very small base whatever, I don't care. I'm going to make two, three, four, five millions this year. Yeah, Probably not five, but like I'm going to make a lot of money this year. And then just two, three years later, that hurts them so much that growth was basically impossible with the same setup. Because yeah. if you're losing 2%, 20% on 10 million and you're making 2 million a year, you're, you're being stagnant. And yeah. this math is, I think, really powerful to realize. And you have to think about that. Now, you don't have to immediately solve that in the beginning yet. I think it's good to have an idea and it's still better to have the to keep these customers early on than not. But this is where it's really going to hurt you. That's why I said this is the latest point you can afford to actually get customer success right. Yeah. And so, I mean, this was at least when we were fundraising around the 10 to 20 million time and Falcon didn't have the greatest churn profile simply because it's like, you know, it's mid-market stuff. We sold to, you know, social media managers and they were like, Onboarding was super fast, but guess what? Offboarding was also super fast. Um, And, you know, what we were kind of focusing on is to show improving cohorts. So you want to have the different vintages of when you acquire different customers. Uh, You want to show them a nice cohort graph and you want to show that ideally, you know, your older vintages, so the newer vintage is getting better and better and better compared to your older vintages, where you're basically saying, hey, we are improving to talk to the right ICP we're getting better at onboarding them. We're getting better at you know, delivering value. We're getting better at retaining them and so forth. 
and ideally we're getting better at upselling them. And again, right? So this is, I agree, you don't need to focus on this on day one or day two, um, but what you want to be able to show around the five to 15 million stage is that you are consistently getting better, right? Which sometimes can, uh, you know, be a better argument if you if you are challenged on the on the churn side. Yes. Right? Execution-wise, I would add one more little caveat that might help you tip-wise, which is differentiate the cohorts really by mm -hmm. the by the customer uh, profiles that you have, because at this stage you will have multiple customer profiles, mm -hmm. and that will really help you to sort of understand this is what we need to deal with: customer A, customer B, customer C. So, Raul, I think we kind of talked about the different stages of growth, product market fit, go-to-market fit, scale-up, and then, I don't know, late stage, how are we going to call this? And then we talked about some of the intricacies that, you know, people see going through those different stages. We went on our usual tangents in order to sometimes go super deep into some different areas. It's again, whenever I chat with Raul, I'm kind of taking kind of stuff away from my own side, right? And this is this kind of what's, what makes this a, a bunch of fun. And I hope uh, everyone else has kind of the same experience here. So uh, thanks a bunch, uh, Raul, for the conversation. And uh, thank you everyone else for listening. Same for me. Thanks, everyone. Sure, bye.